This is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to South China Sea Currents, our weekly podcast on what's happening in the South China Sea. I'm joined by our South China Sea reporter, Drake Long, to talk about what he's been working on this week for RFA and Banar News. How are you doing, Drake? Doing pretty well. How about yourself? I'm doing well, thank you. I'm doing well. So, notwithstanding the rancor surrounding the US election, a change of administration is imminent in Washington. So what better time to take a step back and look at how US policy toward the South China Sea has evolved over the years? I don't mean in just the past four years under President Donald Trump, but in the past 70 years since the end of of World War II. Drake has been poring over history books and diplomatic archives to track the origins and evolution of how the US government has handled this most sensitive of issues. That's right from the surrender of Imperial Japan at the end of the Second World War through to the rise of China today and its assertion of sovereignty over much of the South China Sea. So, Drake, let's start at the beginning. Where does your story kick off? So if we want to trace back the evolution of U.S. policy on the South China Sea, I think the natural starting point is 1951 with the San Francisco Peace Conference, where the peace treaty with Imperial Japan was finally formalized and the question came up of, you know, what do we do with these territories the Japanese Empire had uh, in the middle of the Pacific, including the Spratly and Paracel Islands, which are the two main bodies of rocks and reefs in the South China Sea. So I believe that 1951 was the right place to start, although you could go earlier than that if you really wanted to. Okay, so to give us a, a sort of sense of history and, you know, to go back those those seven decades, um, we've got a clip of an old British newsreel of covering that conference. So let's listen to that. Six years after the end of hostilities, the San Francisco Peace Treaty brings to an end the state of war with Japan. In the War Memorial Building, Monsieur Schumann for France adds one of the 49 signatures to the treaty. Each representative uses a new pen, which is then given him as a memento. Then America's Secretary of State, Dean Acheson, the man whose untiring efforts made the conference possible. Now the moment when Victor and Vanquished are linked together in friendship as Premier Yoshida signs for Japan. So the Japanese peace treaty is signed, allowing a former enemy to win her way back to full partnership in the councils of world peace. So, Drake, this was six years after the war. And uh, as the um, journalist said there, Japan was again a partner in the councils of world peace. So Japan was giving up its claims to the islands, islets in the Paracels and the Spratlys. Was that a big deal? It was a big deal. I mean, I think the easiest way to think about it is it essentially reset ownership and occupation of those little islets. So before World War II, uh, various European countries like France and Britain even claimed different little parts of those islands and occupied them. During World War II, Japan came through and basically occupied every little bit of them. By giving up those territories at the end of the San Francisco Peace Conference, it became extremely ambiguous who actually owned them, like whose sovereignty did they revert to? It could have been the Republic of China, but the Republic of China by that point had lost the Chinese Civil War and was in no position to administer those territories. Was it the People's Republic of China? Well, I mean, certain countries that signed the peace treaty like the USA did not recognize the People's Republic of China at that time. So the best way to think about it is that essentially reset the uh, issue 
it became this in the context of decolonization and in the context of this new emerging Cold War, the value of the Spratly Islands and the Parasol Islands completely changed and the clear-cut ownership of them became much more vague. So did the U.S. really care about the islands in the South China Sea at this point? No, not necessarily. Uh, There is an appreciation of their strategic value during the war. But I mean, the things that we talk about now, like economic rights, uh, possible oil reserves, the fish stocks in that area, were almost completely unknown or just not really much of a factor to the U.S. There was enough concern to keep the language on them ambiguous in the peace treaty to make sure they didn't revert to any one entity. Uh, But there wasn't enough appreciation on the U.S. side for, you know, why even bother with these little rocks? I think at the time, their main value was guano, which is what Japan wanted out of them, Uh, you know, bat guano. It's a very different situation today. So that's for fertilizer. So it's only strategic value was fertilizer. Mm -hmm. So U.S. basically didn't take a position on who owned the different features in the South China Sea. No, not whatsoever. Okay. Let's fast forward a bit to 1974. What happened then? So 1974 was a big wake-up call. That was the battle between China, the People's Republic of China, and what was then the South Vietnamese government in the Paracels, the clash at the Paracels, so to speak, that saw Vietnam essentially run out of the area. And it saw China conquer, you know, classical style, like conquer and occupy those little islets in the South China Sea. To this day, China still owns and occupies pretty much all of the Paracels. So it was a, a major shock to the U.S., to European observers, to other countries around the region when the PRC came in and took those islets. Uh, the South Vietnamese government, as has been known, was a U.S., basically it was a client state, it was a U.S. ally. The U.S. had started this precipitous withdrawal from Vietnam in 1973 after a long, bruising war there. And then as soon as the U.S. leaves, China moves in and kind of seizes the parasols. That was when people started to realize that yeah, there's a lot to fight over here. Um, these countries really do care about these little rocks, and there's there's the potential for a serious conflict, serious bloodshed to happen. I mean, that was a really pivotal time because basically China occupied Paracels at that point, and they haven't left since. Yes, exactly. And for the U.S., I guess, I mean, this was in the death throes of the Vietnam War, as you say, so there were more pressing matters that Washington had to attend to in Southeast Asia. What was the U.S. stance in the Battle of the Paracels after the Chinese had taken over the islands? Non-intervention. So the U.S. Navy reportedly watched the battle from afar and they knew about it, but their main concern was not coming in and helping the South Vietnamese keep these rocks. Because keep in mind, they didn't acknowledge that South Vietnam had a valid claim to them. They really didn't make any determination on who had sovereignty over these little bits of land. And at that time, The U.S. more or less was pulling out of Southeast Asia for a number of reasons. They didn't exactly want to get involved yet again over something like the Paracels. The biggest concern, based off cables that I saw, was the U.S. was very concerned about how this would look to the Philippines, which was a U.S. treaty ally and had its own features in the Spratly Islands that it occupied. They were mostly concerned about, you know, maybe China doesn't stop at the Paracels. What if they move further south and take some other rocks that the Philippines has? That was a major concern of theirs. I mean, it seems the U.S.-Philippine relationship has been totally fundamental to U.S. policy in the South China Sea over the, over the past decades. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's the one thing that I found digging through these uh, notes and archives is that that's really the pivotal thing for the U.S. is this relationship with the Philippines and how that shapes U.S. policy on the South China Sea. To clarify, the U.S. and the Philippines signed what's called a mutual defense treaty in 1951. It obligates the U.S. to defend the Philippines in the event that it's attacked and vice versa. Now, the issue here is that the Philippines claims all of these land features in the South China Sea and considers them integral parts of its territory. And the U.S. from 1951 basically to now has been trying to tread a very fine line on whether or not it's worth defending the Philippine claims in the South China Sea at the cost of, you know, getting entrapped in a naval conflict there. Or if it's better to just say, we're not going to defend these little rocks for you in the South China Sea, but that endangers the entire U.S.-Philippine alliance. I mean, all the way back to 1974, we see that you see the U.S. ambassador to the Philippines cabling into Washington and being like, China has taken the parasols. What do I tell the Philippines? Uh, Because they're inevitably going to ask us to step up patrols or something near their territories. And right around this time, the Philippines was really the only Southeast Asia base for the U.S. military. So they had an enormous amount of leverage over the U.S. They were saying, what do we tell the Philippines? They're going to want us to do something about this. And if we give them a very firm no, that might endanger the last ally that we have in the area. So it's a very interesting kind of echo. I mean, we see this exact same problem come up time and time and time again where the Philippines says, will you defend our South China Sea territories? And the U.S. has to kind of remain a little ambiguous about that for a number of reasons. The U.S. has always really had to walk a diplomatic tightrope in its relationship with the Philippines on this issue. I mean, from reading uh, the story that you've written and that we're going to publish this coming week, the U.S. was fearful or concerned that it could become embroiled in a conflict between the Philippines and China, that it might actually embolden the Philippines to, yes. to press its claims. Yes. So after 1974, you have, Fil- you have Filipino Marines stationed at these little specks of land in the Spratly Islands at the Philippines claims. Now, the fear in Washington was that if they communicated to the Philippines too firm of a commitment to defend its South China Sea territory under the Mutual Defense Treaty, that might make the Philippines more aggressive in asserting its claims there, because then that would mean the U.S. would back it up. I mean, if it's a, a battle between Chinese Navy and the Philippine Navy, that doesn't necessarily look good for the Philippines. However, if the Philippines can rope the U.S. into a fight or a conflict, I mean, that's the greatest point of leverage the Philippines has. So what do we see from 1974 all the way through the 1990s is the U.S. kind of playing with the Mutual Defense Treaty and being very, very careful not to overcommit itself to the Philippines' defense. Because again, we're talking about rocks and reefs. These are not real islands. Um, It would be very, very odd for the U.S. to basically commit itself to fighting over those sorts of specks of sand in the middle of nowhere. But at the same time, the Philippines is saying, you know, this is we signed a treaty with you. Are you going to commit to defending it and honoring it or not? Right. And the U.S. wanted to keep Manila sweet so it could continue to have its military bases on Philippine soil. Yeah. And we see that um, dynamic kind of play out in the way the U.S. interprets the mutual defense treaty over time uh, under Philippine pressure. So at first, when it's signed, it commits the U.S. to defending the Philippine territory, including Pacific areas. 
Now, that's a very vague term, Pacific area. What does that even mean? The U.S. never said that meant the South China Sea. That changes a lot in the 1990s. In the 1990s is when the that is when China seizes Philippine-occupied features like Mischief Reef and starts openly constructing facilities on them. This creates a huge diplomatic row uh, to the extent that the Philippines comes to the U.S. once more and says, will you commit to defending our territory? We consider Mischief Reef, which is a submerged feature, to be Philippine territory. Under the Mutual Defense Treaty, you should cover it. At that point, there's a secret note transmitted to the Philippines that says we do actually consider the South China Sea to be in that Pacific area specified under the Mutual Defense Treaty, which is, you know, it's, it's a step forward. But at the same time, the U.S. is not saying that they will defend the Philippine claim there because they still haven't recognized that anyone has sovereignty over that piece of land because it's a submerged feature. It, it, it's an interesting kind of tiptoeing around the issue but getting gradually and gradually more firm and more committed to different articles. It's interesting that the U.S. sort of gradually made a sort of firmer commitment under the Mutual Defense Treaty, because by that time in, say, the late 90s, it had less of a stake in the Philippines. I mean, the base of Subic Bay had, had already been closed. Yet I guess they, the U.S. was becoming more concerned about China becoming bolder and taking over features in the South China Sea. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the the clashes in the Cold War over the South China Sea, you know, in 1974, what have you, China's navy was basically non-existent. They mostly won the naval clash in 1974 because a lot of luck, a lot of scrappiness, and because the South Vietnamese navy, quite frankly, was kind of down and out by that point. If you move into the 90s, post-Cold War period, the U.S. is feeling pretty good about, you know, global order, global peace. Subic Bay closes down basically on the Philippines initiative. And the U.S. is like, all right, that's not the best situation, but we'll deal with it. We're going to maintain the mutual defense treaty. We'll maintain a visiting forces arrangement. We don't necessarily need these massive bases in Southeast Asia anymore. And then China comes out of nowhere. Well, not out of nowhere, but China reminds everybody that, no, 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 we claim these territories and now we're building up our Navy and we're going to build facilities on these little islands in the South China Sea. So that kind of creates a conundrum for the U.S. because they want to wind down, but at the same time, there's a more pernicious security threat to allies like the Philippines in East Asia. At least in the 90s, the Chinese Navy still was not any huge threat to the U.S., so the U.S. could play a little bit ambiguous about it and simply you know, tell the Philippines, yeah, we'll defend territories, but you know, Mr. Freef is a submerged feature. It doesn't really count. It's it's not worthwhile to get embroiled in a fight over this. Let's turn the other cheek. And we see how this increasingly does not fly as we get into the 2000s and time moves on. Okay, you're listening to South China Sea Currents. So yeah, let's fast forward to the Obama administration years, which is when the rubber really hits the road in terms of China's occupying features in the South China Sea. Explain to us the, the next chapter in the story. Yeah, so things really come to a head in, I would say, 2012. That is when China seizes Scarborough Shoal. Basically, they go seal up the entrance and prevent Philippine fishermen from traveling there. This kicks off a massive uh, storm in the Philippines. There's outrage, there's protests. They want to say to the U.S., you know, Scarborough Shoal, which is clearly in Philippine waters and is... It's not submerged, but it's a very shallow feature. It has been occupied by the Chinese. They've seized it. 
you know, mutual defense treaty, you said the South China Sea is part of the Pacific area under the MDT. Will you come to our aid? The Obama administration kind of looks at the situation and says, no, not worth it. Because it's it, there's nothing there. It, it's just a shallow feature. And the U.S. still doesn't have a commitment to recognizing Philippine sovereignty over it. So the U.S. doesn't necessarily back down, but they simply don't say that they're going to come and defend the Philippines on this. The Scarborough Shoal passes into Chinese control. Uh, the rest is history. On top of that, that causes the Philippines to take China to court, the uh, permanent court of arbitration, which we've talked about in many past episodes. That was the impetus for it. The Philippines decides to sue China in international court to basically settle this once and for all. You know, does China have a valid claim to the South China Sea? China is so incensed by this that you know, relatedly in 2014, that's when they start their island building campaigns. So this is the other egregious thing. This is where we see uh, Fiery Cross Reef, Woody Island, Mischief Reef, Subi Reef, all start to get built into these massive artificial islands. That's when they become the military bases that China uses today, was that period of 2014 to 2016. Right. And the Obama administration kind of looks at this and is just, there's no clear good action to do. One, it's a monumental feat for China to be doing this. But two, does the U.S. necessarily want to risk a war to stop it? Uh, the Obama administration decided, you know, maybe not. And it's worth noting that by this time, Xi Jinping comes to power in China. You have a rapidly modernizing Chinese military that seems to have it out for the U.S., or at least in terms of like a regional conflict. And the South China Sea is looking much hotter than it used to be. A lot of claimants around it are suddenly very, very concerned as these arbitration proceedings and China's island building campaigns all kind of come to a head. Right. And I recall in those years in Washington, there was lots of chest beating in Congress about, you know, China building its Great Wall of Sand, a lot of strong rhetoric from the U.S., attempts to get Xi Jinping to vow not to militarize these features. But at the end of the day, the U.S. couldn't really achieve a whole lot to stop China setting up these islands and the military facilities there. But one thing that we did start to see a more freedom of navigation operations. Yeah, so this is the start of the freedom of navigation regime that the U.S. kind of uh, instituted, basically sailing Navy ships really close to these features that China claims to illustrate that the U.S. does not recognize Chinese claims over them. That started under the Obama administration. It was really ramped up during the Trump administration, but it seeked to kind of reassure allies around Southeast Asia and in East Asia that the U.S. was not just going to acknowledge Chinese sovereignty over the rocks and waters of the South China Sea. They would still challenge them, but it was not clear that the U.S. really wanted to, you know, go to war over them because that would be, I mean, that, that would be quite the entanglement to say the least. So what's happened under the Trump administration? So again, we see things move forward gradually, but in a fairly significant way. So the Trump administration in July of this year announces that they are actually going to make some claims, or they're going to make some judgments on sovereignty claims in the South China Sea. They're going to call China's maritime claims, claims to the waters of the South China Sea, and those areas that intrude into the economic zones of other coastal countries illegal. And they're going to call China's claims to submerged and low tide elevations like Mischief Reef, like Scarborough Shoal, also unlawful and illegal. They're acknowledging that those features are on the Philippine continental shelf. They are part of Philippine territory in that sense, but they don't count as islands. So China cannot claim them as such. 
So the U.S. is remaining pretty ambiguous on the majority of sovereignty claims and not taking a side on them whatsoever. Any high tide feature, any feature above the water naturally, the U.S. is not saying who owns that feature or who has sovereignty over it. But they're also taking some of the, the less controversial features like James Shoal, Mischief Reef, Sarbo Shoal, and saying China cannot have valid claims to those features. Um, they're also saying China cannot just claim waters in the South China Sea as if they're land. So a very interesting, but very decisive change of tone. And right. on top of that, uh, the Trump administration levied sanctions on Chinese companies involved in that island building campaign from 2014 to 2016. How effective those sanctions are is, it's pretty debatable. We've covered that in the past podcast. But by naming and shaming them, the Trump administration is like trying to make up for lost time on uh, calling those companies and China's behavior out. So Trump administration has actually taken, I mean, quite a nuanced legal position on the South China Sea and taken a stronger stance. I think the reason why it's grabbed a lot more attention is that this has kind of been an extension of a real deterioration in U.S. and China relations. And the fears of a conflict have really escalated. I think that's exactly right. I mean, before... With the South China Sea, you have this balancing act of you want to reassure the Philippines, uh, you want to make it clear that China cannot own this vast swath of ocean in the middle of the Pacific. At the same time, China is a trading partner of the United States. China is emerging from the Cold War with a more, I don't know what you want to call it, capitalist outlook, what have you. The U.S. doesn't really have the appetite for a new Cold War or confrontation or anything of that sort. So they have to balance the relationship with Southeast Asia and their relationship with China. It's only recently that there's been a much more rivalrous, competitive sort of nature between the US and China, where you basically have the US saying like, well, why do we respect China's position on the South China Sea? We don't really have to do that anymore. So I think that these slights have built up over time and the new shift in South China Sea policy is part of that. But I would greatly emphasize that after digging through this you know, 70 year period, I actually think the proper way to look at it is that the gradual change of South China Sea policy is because there were a series of accidents that built up over time that the U.S. kind of had to respond to. Now, number one, who owns the South China Sea territories after World War II? The U.S. doesn't really have a good answer at the time, so let's put it off. 1974, uh, what do we do if uh, our allies attacked in the South China Sea? Not too sure, let's put it off. 1990s, the Philippines is demanding we honor the Mutual Defense Treaty, what do we do? Well, let's let's clarify what the Mutual Defense Treaty covers, but remain ambiguous in the South China Sea. Let's put it off. Island building, let's put it off. Now we are getting into the 2020s, and you can't put it off anymore. You have to get, the trend line is to get more and more specific through the years on what the U.S. wants in the South China Sea, what their national interest is, and then how do you reassure these other claimants? So it's, it's been an interesting uh, timeline, to say the least. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting arc of history. So given that the stakes are growing higher and the U.S. is becoming sort of more specified in its policy stance, what about the future? I mean, we're looking forward now, notwithstanding, you know, the President Trump not conceding the election, we're looking forward to Joe Biden becoming the next president. What's the policy on the South China Sea likely look like under under Biden. Right. So there looks like there's going to be more continuity to change. And that's actually a subject of an article that we're publishing. So one trend line throughout all of US South China Sea policy, it never goes backward. 
they just get more and more specific. They clarify their interests more and more uh, succinctly. So I don't think you're going to see a Biden administration, and, and no one I've talked to thinks this either, you're not going to see a Biden administration refute the Trump administration's South China Sea policy. Technically, it's sort of in line with what the U.S. has always wanted to do, which is to bring up international law, the 2016 Permanent Court of Arbitration ruling, and incorporate that into the U.S. position. People I talked to said that, you know, on the freedom of navigation operations, on military cooperation with Southeast Asian countries aimed at the South China Sea and maritime security, those are definitely not going to roll back under a Biden administration. They may not escalate, but they're not going to roll back solely because the U.S. tends to get a lot of um, influence out of them, and they seem to serve U.S. purposes quite well. The reasons for the U.S. involvement in the South China Sea are not going away anytime soon. You know, roughly $200 billion worth of goods, U.S. goods travel to the South China Sea every year. The mutual defense treaty with the Philippines is still in effect, so the U.S. still has a security concern in the South China Sea. And then on top of that, China's naval modernization, their military buildup in general, has the U.S. extremely worried. So for all of those reasons, the South China Sea direction under Biden is not likely to change. It is likely to further develop. And if you look at statements from some of his likely policy advisors like Michelle Florinoy and Anthony Blinken, uh, they make that quite clear, too, that it's a, the South China Sea is definitely an area of interest to them, and they're not likely to you know, sit back and sit idly by, as we've seen for, you know, certain periods of U.S. history. They're likely to stay the course that the Trump administration has set. Right. And there's certainly not going to be a sudden end to tensions between the U.S. and China under a new U.S. administration. Not anytime soon. So, Drake, thank you very much. Fascinating review of the history of U.S. policy in the South China Sea. You'll be able to see that article on rfa.org and banarnews.org, where you can also catch all of Drake's previous articles. On those websites, you can see our podcasts, or otherwise, you can search for South China Sea Current on Spotify and iTunes. If you've got any questions or feedback, please email us on South China Sea, that's all one word, at rfa.org, or you can follow Drake on Twitter. His handle is drm underscore long. I'm Matt Pennington with Drake Long, the South China Sea reporter for Radio Free Asia and Banana News. This podcast series is created by Lael Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again.